Hi there, my name is Susan Schultz, and I'm delighted to share with you today a review of the topic Mild Cognitive Impairment, and I'll also be talking about a new characterization as well called Mild Neurocognitive Disorder. I don't have any financial interests or relationships with any manufacturers of products or providers of services I might be discussing in my presentation. What we'll do is start with the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. Now, there were diagnostic criteria proposed by Dr. Ronald Peterson in 1999 for amnestic mild cognitive impairment, although the conceptualization has been recognized for a very long time as a condition where memory or other cognitive function is changing that represents a late-life change that's not quite to a syndrome that we would call dementia. Now, amnestic MCI refers specifically to a condition where memory is noted to be impaired. But it's also possible to have non-amnestic MCI, where the impairment may be in another cognitive function. However, amnestic MCI is most often a syndrome of interest because it really it raises a concern of a potential evolution to Alzheimer's-type dementia. Now, the original criteria involved a memory complaint that was either recognized by the individual and ideally um, also recognized by an informant, which is usually a close family member or someone that spends a great deal of time with the individual. In addition to a subjective memory complaint, there's typically an objective measure or some type of standardized assessment where there can be a quantitative change in memory that is over and above what you would expect for a person's given age and education. Now, this objective memory impairment is in the context of overall a person who is functioning with general cognitive intact abilities, which means that the person is functioning at a level where they're able to maintain their daily living skills and their daily function, and they would not be considered an impaired individual. And by that definition, then, the person is not considered to be suffering from a dementia condition. Now, the reason MCI is an important area of interest is it's not really a diagnosis as much as it's a risk condition where we want to pay attention and follow up, but it may simply just be a risk. Now, one reason that we pay attention to mild cognitive impairment is that there is a risk for progression to a dementing condition or a dementia. Now, if we look at the general population we think that around 10 to 20 percent of persons over age 65 may suffer from mild cognitive impairment. Now, if we look at the population as a whole, only 1 to 2 percent, if we look at all people either with or without mild cognitive impairment, about 1 to 2 percent progress to a dementia diagnosis in a given year. But if we look within specifically the population that has MCI, in the general population, about 5 to 10% of those individuals each year are diagnosed with a dementia condition. 
Now, if we look at people very specifically who present to specialty clinics with a concern, the rate increases. The idea being that people who are particularly concerned may single themselves out, and in that group, there's a slightly higher likelihood of progressing to dementia of about 15% each year. Now, it's a very important condition given the fact that our population is aging, so we have a great many people who are very concerned or feel that they may be suffering from mild cognitive impairment. One of the reasons that this is very important is it may offer a window for us to identify people who perhaps may benefit from future interventions that we recognize may need to be implemented early to prevent a progression to a condition such as Alzheimer's disease. And new research is learning that it's possible that some of the neuropathologic features like plaques and tangles may in fact be present when a person has just MCI and may in fact represent an intervention point, whether it's through identification by brain imaging or other pathophysiologic measures. And looking at these people very early on may give us some important opportunities for treatments. Now, over and above the classic characterization of mild cognitive impairment, the DSM-5, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also characterize a different but related syndrome called mild neurocognitive disorder. Now, mild neurocognitive disorder is not the same as MCI. It's a new characterization that does follow the same spirit, which is allowing a diagnosis of mild symptoms. However, mild neurocognitive disorder is different in the sense that it may be associated with a number of different types of brain changes, not necessarily Alzheimer's disease, but there tend to be different features of mild neurocognitive disorder that may suggest other potential underlying conditions that we'll talk about um, throughout this talk. Now this is a new characterization in the DSM-5 that's been recently published. I'll be talking about sort of general concepts and, and the framework for this condition, but I'd refer you to the actual manual for the very specific criteria and the accompanying text that will explain a great deal more and even more associated etiologies than I'll cover here today. Now, features of mild neurocognitive disorder also require a concern about a cognitive change, as well as evidence that performance is below expectations for a person's age and education. And similarly, daily activities are not markedly impaired to the extent of having actual functional impairment. Now, the associations of mild neurocognitive disorder may be attributed to different conditions depending on the nature of the presentation and the types of cognitive changes that are observed. So mild neurocognitive disorder may be linked to Alzheimer's disease, cerebrovascular disease, frontotemporal lobar degeneration, Parkinson's disease or even Lewy body dementia, and those conditions are described in the DSM as both potentially presenting as a mild neurocognitive disorder or a major neurocognitive disorder, which is the condition that we typically would refer to as a dementia syndrome. 
Now, I'll overview some of the different types of cognitive changes that may be seen in mild neurocognitive disorder, because many of us, including most of our patients, tend to really focus on memory, and often people say, I have memory changes, and they use memory to sort of represent all cognitive function. When, in fact, if we take a look more carefully at cognitive functions, there may be very distinct domains that help us understand what the underlying source may be. And one of these domains is attention and speed of information processing. For a person suffering from a mild neurocognitive disorder, what they may be describing to the clinician is the feeling that tasks are more difficult to do, multitasking requires more effort, and there may be more compensatory behaviors like double-checking a person's work or taking more time to do a given task. And so there's just a feeling that things don't click along in the way that cognition perhaps used to be perceived by the individual. And a lot of that is sustaining attention and sort of rapid online processing of information. Now another domain we refer to as executive function, and that's often characterized as the ability to make complex decisions or complex organizational um, type cognitive activity such as planning a complex task or event where you have to look at a number of different factors that may come into play perhaps with a different temporal sequence. So we consider that sort of higher order decision making. Another type of a cognitive change that may be seen in mild neurocognitive disorder is difficulty with visual spatial skills. And a person suffering from mild symptoms might describe just trouble navigating or trouble getting around various places. It involves the ability to visualize sort of getting from point A to B. And so difficulty, you know, searching for items or visually identifying objects in a room or on a written piece of paper is also a feature of impaired visual-spatial skills. So it involves interpreting visual and spatial information and then using that information to make a decision or perform a task. And that's a different cognitive domain that's distinct from things like memory or attention or other cognitive functions. Now lastly, the most familiar type of cognitive change that patients often describe in mild neurocognitive disorder is memory. And that's simply difficulty remembering either recent events or after a brief delay, some information that was presented. And often compensatory behaviors might be used for a person having memory problems by using calendars or reminders or, you know, keeping sticky notes around and various other behaviors that people find help prompt them because oftentimes a memory may be difficult to retrieve, but a prompt or a reminder for a person with mild neurocognitive changes might be helpful in, in maintaining that overall level of function. So ways that this is often tested is remembering a list of words or a series of images and trying to recall those to memory, either immediately or after a brief delay. Now, lastly, some types of cognitive changes that may be observed that are distinct from memory include trouble finding the right word or using language. 
Now, sometimes it's trouble remembering words, but language function is actually a distinct problem where we have to select the correct language or words in sequence. And there are certain disorders, one of them being frontotemporal lobar degeneration, where the ability to use words correctly uh, may become impaired over time. Similarly, social cognition or making social decisions about how to relate to others or how to interact socially, that may also be a distinct domain that can change over time. Now, when we look at the overall criteria for mild neurocognitive disorder, irrespective of the underlying source, what we want to see in terms of the criteria is evidence of a modest cognitive change that has to be a change from a previous level of performance. And that's very important because some people may have some difficulties with a learning disability or may have a brain injury that induces a lifelong change in a cognitive process. But to have mild neurocognitive disorder, we'd like to see a change from a previous level of function that's occurring later in life. So you may see concern from an individual or a corroborating informant that there's been a change in a cognitive domain. And typically that change is associated with impairment that is detected by an objective clinical assessment so that it's not just a subjective concern. Now, much like MCI, changes in mild neurocognitive disorder should not be sufficient to interfere with general independence in everyday activities, but you may see greater effort or compensatory strategies or other accommodation may be required to maintain independence. Now, part of the criteria also asks that the deficits do not occur exclusively in the context of a delirium. So it's important when you're making this diagnosis to be certain that there isn't an underlying medical condition so that a person is in fact delirious or unable to do cognitive tasks that are not related to a mild impairment but rather a medical condition or delirium. And lastly, the condition should not be attributable to something like a major depression or an additional source that may be impairing cognition. Now, one of the reasons to approach a broader conceptualization of mild neurocognitive disorder is to think about attending to conditions that may in fact be related to a specific underlying process. Now, very rarely it may be possible to document mild neurocognitive disorder that is probably related to an Alzheimer's dementia in the rare conditions where there's a known genetic causative Alzheimer's disease condition in the family. These are very rare autosomal dominant conditions that tend to be well known within a given family, and there is, would not be a common condition. However, Possible Alzheimer's disease may be diagnosed um, when there's a concern that there's definitely progression of a decline in memory, even though it's of a mild magnitude, but there's steady, progressive, gradual change in cognition with no extended plateaus, and there's been an exclusion of any other source, 
like a stroke or Lewy body or Parkinson's disease or other sources, it's possible to conclude that the individual may have a possible attribution to Alzheimer's disease, which helps us identify people with sort of specific risk conditions that may bear further attention or intervention. At the mild neurocognitive disorder phase, what often is, is seen clinically is patients present with some impairment in memory. Now, to progress to an Alzheimer's dementia, typically a second impairment is, is required. And most often, early on, there may be accompanying impairments in executive function, which I mentioned earlier is the higher order decision-making function or organizing complex activities. Now, this is distinct from the features that you may see with mild neurocognitive disorder when it's attributable to possible vascular disease as a source. The clinical features when there's a vascular source are when the deficits are observed that are temporally or time-wise related to a potential vascular event, whether it's a mild stroke or an overt stroke or a transient ischemic attack or evidence of extensive small vessel disease. So there has to be some type of attribution to an underlying vascular etiology. Now in persons with this type of cognitive change, typically the evidence for declining cognition is not memory per se, but rather a change in complex attention, which I talked about that speed of information processing, trouble multitasking, and also trouble with that executive function um, domain, trouble with higher order decision making. Those are the two features that tend to be more likely seen when mild NCD or neurocognitive disorder is due to vascular disease as opposed to possibly due to Alzheimer's disease where memory is the prominent feature. Now also to, to look at the criteria for mild neurocognitive disorder due to vascular disease, typically there is evidence from additional factors like history, physical examination, or neuroimaging where there's a definite support for large vessel stroke or small vessel disease. Oftentimes we see on brain imaging the, the indication for small vessel ischemic disease or white matter disease or white matter ischemia that may help us understand the attribution of the cognitive changes. And again, just like with the other mild NCDs, we have to be cautious when we make the diagnosis that the symptoms are not better accounted for by another brain disease or another condition. Now we can do a similar diagnostic certainty approach, whether it's vascular disease or other etiologies, by considering the attribution probable if additional criteria are present. And we can consider mild neurocognitive disorder as probably related to vascular disease if there's definite support by neuroimaging of vascular disease and we have definite temporal or time-wise um, relationship between a documented cerebrovascular event and a cognitive change. Now we can consider the attribution possible if we're not entirely certain that there's a temporal relationship or if there's an absence of neuroimaging information or we're just not certain that the onset really matches with a series of cerebrovascular events or risk factors.
Now, when we consider mild neurocognitive disorder due to vascular disease, it's important to realize that things don't often happen in isolation. Very commonly, cerebrovascular disease may in fact be present in a person who may also have features of an Alzheimer's disease process. Um, these often do co-occur clinically, and definitely we see this in the clinical setting. So in the case where there is evidence for cerebrovascular disease, but there's also uh, a suggestion of memory changes that make the condition potentially attributable to Alzheimer's disease, it's important that documentation relates to both conditions. And so both, both conditions may be documented, that there's evidence of mild neurocognitive disorder that's possibly related to cerebrovascular disease, and there's also evidence for mild neurocognitive changes that are possibly due to Alzheimer's disease. And so it's important to document both when, in fact, there is good evidence from a variety of clinical assessments that both may be present. It's also very important to note that late-life depression in particular has been associated in specifically with vascular neurocognitive disorder. So looking at depressive symptoms may be informative when a person is trying to determine clinically what the attribution may be from. So along the lines of depression, now to go back to our original construct, which is the, the disorder mild cognitive impairment, which really historically was how we characterized an at-risk group, most of the research, in fact, historically um, over the past couple decades has looked at the condition of MCI and specifically looked at whether depression might, in fact, be an early sign or a risk factor for MCI. And when we consider some of the some of the research that's longitudinally looked at these two conditions, um, there was an interesting study, and actually there's been a number that have looked at this co-occurrence. And now one study that came out a few years back followed persons who were originally diagnosed with amnestic MCI, meaning that they had specific memory complaints and memory changes followed them over a three-year period looking at the group that had major depressive disorder diagnosed by the geriatric depression scale and then the remainder of the group so 41 of the 114 patients had depression 73 did not when that, those two groups were followed over three years, it was discovered that there was a greater likelihood of the group with depressive symptoms to show the development of dementia of the Alzheimer's type. 85% of those over a three-year period with depressive symptoms um, developed incident AD versus 32% of the group without depressive symptoms. This leaves us with the question of uh, does, does depression accelerate the progression of MCI or when MCI has some depressive symptoms does it represent a more or a more pathogenic type of MCI and so the, it's, it's interesting to think about the two things co-occurring. Now, if we look at treatment of depression, one might think, well, if we treat depression in MCI, um, perhaps we can affect the outcome. So an interesting study did take a look at that very question with over 100 subjects who presented to a geriatric mental health clinic for treatment of depression. 
Of that group, 38% had MCI, whereas the remainder did not. So what was interesting is that after adequate treatment response for the depression, among the group that remitted in terms of depression, nearly half still had cognitive impairment. So there's this idea sometimes that if you treat the depression, the cognitive impairment may go away. But in fact, even when the depression is treated, there's a chance that the cognitive disorder um, remains and may in fact still be progressing. Now, when we evaluate for MCI, we have to be appreciative that families are often very concerned, and oftentimes persons that present for evaluation of memory represent worried well who tend to be overly concerned about their own aging or their own memory function, and maybe they had to provide care for a family member with dementia, and so they excessively have concerns. On the flip side of that, Often, persons with memory change may, in fact, not be able to self-assess and may lack insight. So occasionally, individuals are brought to clinical attention due to family concerns that may be much greater than the individual's concern who's affected. So I think we have to be very sensitive in the clinical situation for the type of dynamic, both in the individual and their close friends and family members. So oftentimes it's very useful to do separate assessments where the, the, the individual alone perhaps has some memory testing and exam, but there's also an opportunity to collect corroborating information from family or other close associates that might allow for a better received exam with better information. Um, oftentimes these situations can be fairly anxiety provoking and emotional for individuals affected. Now, elements of the examination require a careful history, and it's very important to get a sense from the individual and the family of sort of the highest level of function with some type of a diagnostic or objective screen if possible. And the Montreal Cognitive Assessment is readily available that allows a nice screening tool that may be helpful for the clinician to diagnose whether in fact there's change over time or to assess. And we often have thresholds, 26 or above is often considered within an unaffected range for the, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. But the more important thing over time is to determine whether in fact that's changing with sequential assessments at every six months or so. If there is in fact change over time, full neuropsychological testing is extremely helpful to help us in assessing those domains that I talked about. Different strengths and weaknesses in each of those different cognitive domains can help us try to think about potential underlying sources. And when necessary, brain imaging and of course a laboratory evaluation and physical examination are also essential elements to make sure that there isn't another underlying uh, medical condition or another source of cognitive change. Now, when conducting a history of present illness in this group, it's really important to get a sense of the highest level of functioning. For example, a 
a person that's functioning at an exquisitely highly educated, very high demand um, job situation may be able, in fact, to continue functioning at a high level on a screening exam like a mini mental status exam or a MOCA exam because of the very high level of functioning. And in fact, for those individuals, perhaps, even scoring relatively well may represent a change in their highest level of function. So having a sense of where their baseline is might be very important. Sensing early signs and symptoms and documenting their severity is also very important, as well as their temporal course to things like cerebrovascular risk factors, and other medical conditions. So really a systematic review of not only um, cognitive functional neuropsychiatric symptoms but also general physical well-being and other psychosocial changes is very important in the initial evaluation. Once all of those things are considered, in some cases brain imaging may be informative, particularly if there's a concern about a history of cancer, or changes in gait that suggest a normal pressure hydrocephalus condition or other reversible causes. Imaging might also help us when there's a concern about cerebrovascular um, changes. It may help us identify microvascular disease, the small vessel ischemic disease that I mentioned that may not have a history of an overt stroke but may be insidiously occurring over time and may only be identified by imaging. And imaging over time also may help us if there's an unusual case, such as a particularly young onset or unusual progression of cognitive change. Now, once we do our assessment, it's important to think about next steps. You know, what does the evidence say on what to do next? As clinicians, we typically want to do something. Um, unfortunately, when we look at the medications used to treat Alzheimer's disease, as I'll discuss in a little bit, there's no clear positive trials for their use in, in earlier conditions, such as MCI or myeloma neurocognitive disorder. There are some interventions that may have some positive results. As I've already mentioned a bit, treatment of depression in some individuals may assist in cognitive change, exercise, and other cognitive stimulation or lifestyle activities may in fact influence the variance in outcome of mild cognitive impairment or mild neurocognitive disorder. Now, when we look at some of the medicines used in Alzheimer's dementia, what we've discovered is that for the most part, they cannot be routinely recommended for persons with earlier conditions such as mild cognitive impairment. When we look at a number of published studies and unpublished studies where individuals have been followed over time who are treated in the mild cognitive impairment range, the rate of conversion across eight different trials was not different among persons who were receiving active medicine versus untreated patients. So the rate of conversion among persons receiving cholinesterase inhibitors was about 13% of persons with MCI um, over two years and 25% conversion to dementia over three years. 
comparing that to patients not receiving active treatment, there was a similar rate of conversion of 18% over two years and 28% over three years, which was no different than the treated group statistically. So use within mild cognitive impairment cannot be concluded to be associated with any delay in the onset of Alzheimer's disease by using a cholinesterase inhibitor. Now, interestingly, looking at this in an even larger sample, using the Alzheimer's disease neuroimaging study, this question was also asked by Lon Snyder and colleagues in a recent paper in the Archives of Neurology. And in this study, they looked at all persons with mild cognitive impairment and mild Alzheimer's dementia who were being followed in the Alzheimer's disease neuroimaging initiative study. Now, in that study, there are a number of biomarkers that are followed over time, but treatment, per se, is at clinical discretion so that patients are followed as would be done clinically for the most part. So in this sample, there were 402 mild cognitive impairment patients and 188 with mild Alzheimer's disease. Now within those samples of the MCI patients, 44% received a cholinesterase inhibitor at the discretion of their clinical um, providers. And of that group, 84% of the mild Alzheimer's disease group um, were treated with cholinesterase inhibitors by their clinicians. So the study evaluated those with mild cognitive impairment receiving cholinesterase inhibitors. This was with or without uh, memantine. Of those that were receiving medicines, they were more impaired over time and showed a greater decline in cognitive scores and progressed to dementia sooner than MCI patients who did not receive cholinesterase inhibitors. Now, one might interpret from that finding that, in fact, there is something deleterious about cholinesterase inhibitors, but, in fact, another perspective that may likely be happening is that the clinicians were selecting patients who appeared to be predisposed for a variety, perhaps, of clinical uh, reasons to be those who were more likely to require treatment or they were a more um, severe group in general that tended to receive active medication or receive medication so that the group was in fact selected to be a more impaired group or a group likely to progress over time by clinical judgment. Now if we take a look at an even more interesting question that if we use cholinesterase inhibitors in persons with depression could in fact treating cognition in the context of depression actually help with depression outcomes? So in a study by Reynolds and colleagues. They compared denepazil, a cholinesterase inhibitor, along with antidepressant therapy, compared to placebo, or no cholinesterase inhibitor, with antidepressant therapy, to determine how it might affect outcomes among older adults treated for depression. In the group treated for depression that was cognitively intact, Denepazil appeared to have no benefit for preventing progression to mild cognitive impairment or dementia, and no benefit for preventing recurrence of depression. Now, in that subgroup of the older adults with depression who had MCI, or mild cognitive impairment, in that subgroup, the recurrence rates of major depression were actually higher if they received 
the cholinesterase inhibitor denepazil versus those that received placebo in addition to their antidepressant therapy. So the suggestion is that if you have mild cognitive impairment, treating with a cholinesterase inhibitor in the context of depression may in fact potentially increase the recurrence rate of major depressive disorder. So as we move on from medications where we don't have a lot of signals for benefit, there is a great deal of attention to diet, lifestyle, and nutrition as other ways that we can make a difference for persons with early cognitive changes. Now there's been a great deal of attention to vitamin E over time in a variety of studies. And so if we take a look at a meta-analysis that combined a number of studies where the influence of vitamin E, particularly on the progression of mild cognitive impairment to Alzheimer's disease was assessed, it was determined that there was really no significant difference between vitamin E and placebo, either in, in beneficial outcomes or in death or adverse events, because I think there was a great deal of concern from a variety of studies over time that suggested vitamin E may in fact have a deleterious effect on longevity. This, in fact, tells us that while vitamin E may have benefit for some conditions, there's no clear signal here that has a risk or a benefit of, of sufficient magnitude in the context of MCI to really warrant treatment. Now, if we look at sort of all things considered, as a number of lifestyle factors have been considered as influential regarding progression to dementia, an interesting study looked at all factors together and tried to tease out from a variety of, of intervention studies and prevention studies which factors seem to be most meaningful in either increasing or reducing risk of Alzheimer's disease. And in aggregate, the factors most highly associated with progression included having diabetes mellitus or hyperlipidemia, high cholesterol in midlife, current tobacco use. All of these things were associated with increased risk of progression to Alzheimer's dementia. Now, if we look at things that tend to be associated with reduced risk, Mediterranean diet, which tends to be a very high-nutrient, um, dense diet, high folic acid intake, low or moderate alcohol intake, cognitive stimulation or cognitive activities, and high physical activity were associated with reduced risk. Now that's a tall order to do all of those things, but I think variations in lifestyle probably do have um, influential effects over time. So if we look together at lifestyle changes, we can conclude that there is evidence to manage comorbidities and in particular vascular factors that may in fact be um, intervened or prevented. Exercise, whenever safely possible, tends to be a lifestyle intervention that does seem to have benefit in a number of studies, not only for cognitive improvement, but also depression. There's good evidence that cognitive stimulation, although further research on the types of cognitive activities that are most beneficial, uh, may be very informative over time. And increasing social stimulation and leisure activities is also an emerging area that may be very fruitful over time.
and certainly optimizing nutrition through a Mediterranean diet or diets that are high in omega-3, antioxidants, and polyphenols are probably all well worth considering for the, to the extent that they may have some positive value over time. Now, to look specifically at exercise, um, there is good evidence that physical exercise may be one potential modifiable factor that may be of benefit. So a very interesting study yielded some, some nice conclusions that might be useful in the clinical setting when we look at a population-based study of persons without dementia and then followed them over time with a, an assessment of physical exercise magnitude to determine who went on to experience uh, mild cognitive impairment. So a sample of 1,324 patients without dementia were assessed in terms of their physical activity, and then they were assessed in terms of their, the odds of having mild cognitive impairment cross-sexually or not having mild cognitive impairment. And the interesting piece of this study is that any frequency of moderate exercise actually reduce the odds ratio or reduce the likelihood that the individual suffered from mild cognitive impairment. So those who reported uh, moderate exercise at midlife had a reduced odds ratio of 0.61 for likelihood of having mild cognitive impairment. And those who had at least moderate exercise at greater than age 65 had also a reduced odds ratio of having mild cognitive impairment. So one of the nice conclusions is that any frequency of moderate exercise performed in midlife or later life did seem to have an association with reduced odds of having mild cognitive impairment. So that lends itself to the question, well, what do we mean by moderate exercise? Uh, many of us want to perhaps know the minimal amount of benefit um, so that we can titrate our exertion accordingly. So if we look more carefully at this study, light exercise was defined as leisurely walking, stretching, slow dancing, um, using a golf cart and golfing. Now, moderate exercise, in a reassuring way, was as simple as a brisk walk, um, hiking, strength training, yoga, um, golfing without a golf cart. And so a moderate, moderate um, exercise is fairly achievable for um, most individuals well into later life. And it's reassuring that vigorous exercise, of it, such as intense use of exercise machines, was not necessarily associated with any greater benefit. And so moderate exercise might actually be optimal because it also reduces any risks of any injuries or other adverse outcomes. So a very interesting meta-analysis of exercise also supported um, this beneficial idea. And if we looked at a very large meta-analysis of 33,000 individuals without dementia, and this group was followed longitudinally for up to 12 years across all the studies in the meta-analyses, and of that group, initially 33,000, um, 3,200 did develop cognitive decline.
Now the interesting piece of this is whether it was a high level of physical activity or a low to moderate level of physical activity, those who had at least some level of physical activity had a reduced hazard ratio for the development of cognitive decline. I find this reassuring that at least if there's some maintenance of physical activity, it can have a substantial effect on risk of progression. So if we summarize some of the beneficial interventions, um, the ability to diagnose mild cognitive impairment or recognize mild neurocognitive disorder give us ways to identify and intervene with suggestions about lifestyle and provide some prevention options that we hope will be a little bit better defined over time as we continue to study our aging individuals. Right now, the use of medications isn't clearly well-defined and may depend on really what we choose in clinical practice, but we don't have strong evidence for medication interventions at this time, with the exception that perhaps optimizing treatment of depression may have some benefit. And then, of course, support and follow-up and ongoing assessment is very helpful. And to the extent that we can suggest and encourage lifestyle changes, these things may go a very long way in helping the older population. And we hope to learn more about specific lifestyle changes over time that perhaps may need to be incorporated even before mid to late life and become really lifelong um, behaviors that have cognitive benefit.